0: Welcome to Bruin, one ear, not the other. I'm Pranav, and our guest on today's podcast is Kristen Choi. Not only is she a health services researcher and psychiatric nurse, but she's also an assistant professor at the UCLA School of Nursing and Fielding School of Public Health. So, without further ado, here is our interview with Kristen.
1: Hi, Kristen. Thank you for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other.
2: Hi there. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So because this is a UCLA-themed podcast, one of the things that we like to do is ask one of the questions that current applicants have to answer as part of their application. As always, we think we think it serves as a great introduction for our listeners. And so the prompt we've chosen for you today is, describe how you have taken advantage of a significant educational opportunity or work to overcome an edu- an educational barrier you have faced?
2: Oh, that's a really great um, idea for your introduction there. I haven't thought about um, college application questions in a long time, but I think that's a really good one. Um, for me, I think I'll talk about a, um, an educational uh, sort of challenge and how I handled it. And this actually happened to me when I was in nursing school back at the University of Michigan. So I started nursing school in 2010. And, you know, a lot of people who go into a field like nursing, they do it because they've had some kind of really powerful personal experience, whether that's a family member who's been sick or being sick yourself and kind of getting to see how incredible it is to do what nurses do and deciding you want to go down that career path. In my case, though, I didn't know almost anything about nursing. I um, kind of picked it I don't want to stay on a whim, but certainly without a lot of thought, I just knew I wanted to do something related to science and math and happened to read about nursing one day and thought it seemed fine. But when I got into nursing school as an undergraduate, um, I actually found myself pretty frustrated with it almost right away. Um, The long and short of it is that I felt like when I got into the healthcare world and I saw how many challenges there are to navigating our really... Complicated and sometimes dysfunctional health system, I felt like uh, the role of nurses was not actually the role that I wanted. And, and this is also true for anyone who's doing frontline patient care. I felt like what I was doing was just kind of watching people turn through this dysfunctional system over and over and over. As a nurse, you know, I would kind of meet them there at their rock bottom, help get them out, but I couldn't do anything about this bigger system that I was a part of. Um, and so I, I felt pretty frustrated with with that role of a frontline clinician right away. Um, I uh, don't think I really knew what to do with that frustration. I actually thought for a long time that I would just switch out of nursing and find something else to do. But then I got presented with a pretty unique opportunity that I think solved at least in part the the issues I was facing. Something a lot of people don't know about nursing, you know, we are the largest healthcare profession in the country in the world. There's about 4 million nurses in the US and about 20 million in the world. And really, nurses provide the bulk of a lot of care that happens in hospitals. But there is a real problem at the top of nursing where there is a shortage of nurses who have PhDs and nurses who can, you know, teach other nurses, lead the profession, uh, do nursing research. Uh, Less than 1% of nurses actually hold a PhD. And so um, that has been one of our biggest um, crises in the nursing profession, uh, trying to deal with a nursing shortage and grow the nursing workforce when we don't have the leadership or educators there to do what we need to do um, to meet that workforce need. So um, when I was at Michigan, I was presented with an opportunity to do an accelerated PhD. Uh, Basically, I had the opportunity to enroll as a sophomore and junior nursing student in a kind of pre-doctoral program start taking PhD classes and get on a fast track into nursing research. And um, I don't think I really knew what a PhD was either, but I did definitely understand that doing research was potentially a way to make that kind of big picture health system change that I wanted to. And so uh, I kind of jumped in and, and went forward and did it. Uh, as soon as I finished my undergraduate degree in 2014, I jumped right into a three-year PhD, which I finished in 2017. And um, you know, I think circling back to the um, application question, uh, this was, I think, um, in some ways, it probably would have been easier to just just kind of quit, just to say like, okay, nursing, you know, a clinical role, this is just not for me. I'm going to go do something else, whether that's health policy or public health or something where I can just do that bigger picture work. But I think that um, there is something really special about being a clinician, and in particular, being a nurse, someone that really knows. Uh, what it is like on the very, very front front lines of being sick. And um, I think that kind of pushing through and finding a way to have a path to be someone who is in a bit more of a leadership and change agent kind of role as a nurse um, has actually led to a lot of opportunities that I'm so grateful for sticking with nursing and and pushing through it in that way. Um, Again, simply because there is this big absence of nurses who have a PhD, Um, I have found that it has opened a lot of doors for me and a lot of opportunities that I probably wouldn't have if I had gone um, some other kind of healthcare route.
1: I I guess, speaking for myself, I didn't know that uh, there were PhDs in in nursing. And so Mm -hmm. maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is the the role of a nurse scientist and, and kind of why they're important.
2: Sure, sure. So I, I hear that all the time when I tell people that I have a PhD in nursing, they're like, "Wow, I didn't even know that existed." So that's that's really common. And you know, part of the reason is what I said earlier that it's a very very small number of nurses who who have a PhD. So they're they're not too common. But also, um, you know, nursing as a scientific discipline is a fairly new concept. Um, for a long time, nursing was considered kind of a trade. It was something that people learned, you know, how to do the skills of being a nurse in a hospital. It wasn't associated with, you know, a, a college degree or with higher education. Um, and actually, the first nurse to really turn nursing into more of a science than a trade uh, was Florence Nightingale. She's probably the the most famous uh, nurse in history, and she was really instrumental in the Crimean War and bringing a lot of science-based practices to hospital care of soldiers. And it was her um, leading a lot of efforts to sanitize um, hospitals, uh, to keep really good track of data and things that were happening to soldiers in the hospitals that led to dramatic decreases in mortality. And she was kind of the first person to pioneer this idea that nursing is, is a really a science, and it's something that uh, does take a lot of education and skill and intelligence more so than being a trade. So, you know, obviously that was quite a long time. Nursing has progressed a long way since then to to being something that is a a career that requires a college degree. Uh, And in the 1970s was actually when the first nursing PhDs started to be granted. That uh, might sound like a while ago, but it's actually really recent. You know, the very first PhDs ever were being granted in like, I wanna say like the 1100s or something. So so we're actually pretty late to the game in the grand scheme of things. but uh, yeah, so so nursing is you know relatively young as a scientific discipline. I also think um, if you ask you know your average person, most people know kind of what nurses do, and, and a lot of people could tell you about nurses they know or experiences they've had with nurses. But if I ask you to define what nursing is, like what is it really that nurses are, are doing and what is it that they contribute in healthcare, A lot of people have a really hard time answering that. So I always just like to start with kind of a basic definition and and set it up in a way that makes sense uh, in relation to medicine, which is what people know really well. So medicine uh, is the diagnosis and treatment of human illness. We all kind of know that, and that one makes sense. Nursing is the diagnosis and treatment of the human response to illness. So what nurses really do uh, in practice and in science is look at how people respond Physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, socially, and many different domains of function, to the experience of being sick or being healthy, and and really um, intervene to help uh, people respond to illness in ways that are healthy and you know promote their their well-being and recovery. Um, so, as a nursing scientist, I really use that lens of nursing science to approach a lot of the research that I do, um, but you know, like a lot of STEM fields, uh, science has become very, very interdisciplinary. In many ways, you know, if you get a STEM-related PhD, a lot of what you learn is the process of doing science, how to ask research questions and conduct a study and, and what it means to be a scientist. And whether you're coming at science from the perspective of nursing science or medicine or public health or uh, any other discipline, um, a lot of what we do is the same process of science. So. Um, I think that nurses tend to have a, a bit more of an emphasis on action-oriented science, a lot more focus on how we can um, use research to actually improve health and healthcare for patients, and much more focus on actually implementing research into practice, which can be a major challenge. Um, but uh, yeah, on the whole, um, it's it's pretty similar to what we see in a lot of other clinical um, clinical sciences and other STEM sorts of fields, uh, where people are really using science to try to solve problems in in
0: health. I want to go back to uh, Florence Nightingale, big Florence Nightingale fan myself. First learned about her, maybe middle school, maybe high school, intersection of kind of her and as well as you at Michigan early on, where entering nursing, you felt that it was too narrow of a lens, uh, Mm. focusing on medicine and, and not incorporating maybe social justice or policy. Florence Nightingale had a huge contribution to nursing with her environmental theory Um, Are you able to kind of uh, expand on that a little bit more and and, and talk about how maybe you incorporate that in your workplace?
2: Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So um, um, I'm impressed with your Florence Nightingale knowledge. Uh, That's that's really wonderful. Um, During the Crimean War, you know, Florence Nightingale uh, came to believe that a lot of the death rates that they were seeing among soldiers had to do with the conditions of the hospital. Um, and that it wasn't inevitable that these soldiers had to die. And she uh, really thought that things like, you know, lack of hygiene, lack of supplies, lack of fresh air and cleanliness, poor nutrition, uh, all those things were playing a role in contributing to death of soldiers. And so, you know, she was, a lot of people consider her to be a statistician as well as a nurse. She did a lot of work to track these things using data and to show that by changing and improving the environmental conditions of hospitals, they could actually improve mortality. And um, again, of course, that's what she's she's really famous for and well-known for. So, um, you know, I, I think that she is definitely someone that um, I and a lot of other nurses look to because um, it's rare, I think, that we think of nurses as scientists or statisticians, or maybe even reformers. Nursing has a really long history of having this focus on social justice and change. But I think that the popular perception of nurses tends to be one of two things. So one is a kind of narrative that nurses are um, these very uh, angelic people. We're we're just really nice, kind, caring, compassionate, do-gooder kind of people who who are just very nice and we're nurses because we're nice, good people. I think there also can be kind of a hero narrative where we think that nurses um, are just people who, who really are hardworking and wanna make sacrifices to help others. Probably a third narrative that uh, is out there, in, especially in a lot of media, is I think there can be some sexualization of nurses and you know thinking of nurses in a more objectified kind of way. Um, but the reality is that none of those tropes or narratives about nurses really actually capture what it is that nurses do. And so what I appreciate about Florence Nightingale is that she um, she wasn't afraid to break outside the mold and outside of this idea that nurses are going to kind of be the, the handmaidens of the doctors and just nice women going to help poor sick people. She, she was someone who really wanted to make change, who took a leadership role, and she used science to do it. And um, I definitely hope to to do the same in my, in my career as a nursing scientist. I do wanna also mention, I think this is really important. Um, Florence Nightingale and a lot of nurses and a lot of other historical figures, uh, she did a lot of really good things, but she was also a very complicated figure. Um, there were a lot of issues that we now can look at her story and see that she also had certainly some problems with racism as a lot of uh, healthcare institutions did at that time. Um, there were other nurses uh, who also wanted to help with the Crimean War. The most famous one being a Jamaican nurse named Mary Seacole, uh, but she was not allowed to to participate in Florence Nightingale's uh, nursing school or hospitals um, because she was uh, from Jamaica. She was black, and uh, there was a lot of racism at that time. So. I look at Florence Nightingale and, and, and in a positive light in terms of what she did for nursing science, but I also think it's really important to acknowledge that um, she wasn't perfect, she was complicated, and there's a lot of things about uh, her approach to nursing and kind of building up nursing as a profession uh, that I think we can and should critique you know, in, in, current, um, in light of what we know now and uh, make sure that we don't repeat some of those patterns um, of institutional racism or discrimination in healthcare professions and in nursing
0: now. And it's not a problem that's been solved. Um, as an academic, mm-hmm. uh, you probably have seen quite a many textbooks. And, and I've recently heard that a lot of textbooks, the diagrams in the textbook are only white skin. And how do you diagnose mm-hmm. a patient if they have a rash? Do we need to start incorporating a racial equity lens in textbook or, or how does this change happen in medicine?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, we could probably talk for hours about all the ways that this is still a problem to this day and how we um, think about medical and nursing education and how we teach these things um, to nurses. A couple of years ago, there was a, a really unfortunate um, uh, image out of a nursing textbook that went around social media that I think is really telling of the problem. Um, I think that a lot of our approach to trying to do better about some of these um Histories that we have of racism and discrimination in healthcare has been something that is called in um, in clinical in the clinical world cultural competence. We need to be culturally competent. We need to you know provide people with healthcare that meets them where they're at and understands the culture and context where they come from. But unfortunately, this idea of cultural competence has some problems. It leads to people thinking that we can categories all groups of people to be the same or to look a certain way in healthcare and this image out of a nursing textbook that went around twitter a couple years ago basically broke people down into a bunch of different racial groups and said well this is how asian people are going to express pain and this is how black people express pain and this is how arab people express pain and a lot of people reading those of course said this is outrageous you know these are just stereotypes about these groups that have nothing to do with you know any anything about these groups and also you know we can't assume these things and we shouldn't be teaching nurses to assume these things about whole people groups. Um, and the, the example you pointed out as well about the images that we use in textbook the kinds of bodies that we we use and look at when we're, we're talking about anatomy or uh, dissection and understanding things about people's bodies. Um, we tend to do it in a way that still is very homogenous and, and really centers whiteness in a way that it, that is a big problem. So we, we have a long ways to go. Um, I think that more and more people are talking about these issues and are trying to address them, which is great. I'm really glad to see that. I think the challenge in education for clinicians, and this is probably true more broadly, is just that our solutions really need to be structural and not just piecemeal. It doesn't really work to just say, well, let's just add a module on cultural competence and teach nurses about you know how, how these different racial groups might act in healthcare. That that does not in any way solve this long history of racism that we have. We have to think much bigger about who are our educators, who are the people that are are getting PhDs and, and have the position of getting to teach and educate the next generation. Um, and what are the structures of healthcare and how we deliver this. Um, and are they equitable? Those are kind of the bigger picture issues that um, that we have to grapple with in, in education.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like there's there's still a lot of work left to be done, but it's good that at least we're we're starting to, to diagnose some of those problems and, and taking those initial first steps.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: So bringing it back to, to your current role. Uh, So you currently serve as an assistant professor at the UCLA School of Nursing and the Fielding School of Public Health. Tell us a little bit about what that means in in terms of your current teaching and and research responsibilities.
2: Sure. So UCLA is uh, a very research-oriented university, so I spend most of my time doing research. But one of the things that I love about being a nursing scientist is that I get to do kind of a whole mix of things. I get to do research, I get to teach students, but I also get to see patients directly. And that kind of uh, mix of research, teaching, clinical practice is really, really um, nice and dynamic. I really like it. Um, I teach in a program at UCLA called the Master's Entry Clinical Nursing Program. That's abbreviated MECN, M-E-C-N. Uh, and this is a program for people that have had a career in anything who want to, who decided they want to become a nurse. Uh, basically, they can come to UCLA into our MECAN program, apply in and go through a two year accelerated program to do a master's degree in nursing and become licensed as an RN. Uh, we get people from all different backgrounds, uh, people who have been psychologists and lawyers and and biologists like all all over the place that for whatever reason have decided that they want to change careers and become a nurse. Um, And I think it's really great that we have um, options like that for people to enter the profession of nursing. So I teach a class in the MECN program on um, population health and primary prevention of disease. Then in my um, clinical practice, I work in inpatient psychiatry. I work at a safety net hospital um, over near downtown LA And basically at this hospital, we care for children and adults who are experiencing psychiatric emergencies, that is often um, suicide uh, or some kind of psychotic disorder. And we help get them stabilized and then uh, transition them into less restrictive community-based care. The hospital where I work uh, is a safety net hospital, which means that we care for patients who do not have insurance or patients who have public insurance and might not be accepted at other kinds of hospitals in the county. Um, and what that means as may not surprise you is that the vast majority of our patients who are adults uh, tend to be homeless. they are people who are experiencing very severe psychosis uh, and for whatever reason have been brought in um, by police or by an ambulance uh, for, for a severe psychiatric condition that needs treatment. Um, On the child side, most uh, uh, psychiatric emergencies for kids are related to depression and suicide, but we do also see a small number of kids who are also dealing with psychosis, uh, substance use disorders, sometimes eating disorders, and all kinds of different things. Um, Within that population, um, it's a pretty uh, complicated population. Our patients are coming to us, not with just a mental health concern, but usually a lot of very, very complicated medical, social, legal issues that we have to address as well. Very, very common for our patients to be involved with legal systems or the carceral system in some way. Uh, For our kids, it's very common for them to be involved in juvenile justice or foster care. Um, We have lots of uh, kids with disabilities, learning disabilities and special needs. Uh, And then of course, a lot of complicated social conditions. A lot of uh, patients who come from a background of trauma and violence, uh, places where there is a lot of community violence um, and people facing immigration challenges, you name it. We, we really see just about everything. And uh, even though um, our main purpose is to stabilize people psychiatrically, uh, there is also a lot of other care that has to go into taking care of those patients. Um, That's probably the most exciting part of my job is the the patient side, but that's actually the part that I do least and the part that I do most is research. So at UCLA, I do research on mental health services for kids. Um, I'm really interested in how we can design a mental health care system so that they are more equitable and accessible and that children who have mental health disorders can um, get into care when they need it and at a cost they can afford. Um, Right now in the United States, about one in five children have some kind of mental or behavioral health disorder, but unfortunately, only about half of those kids get treatment. Uh, It's a huge problem, and we also have a huge shortage of mental health providers for kids in the U.S. It's actually estimated right now that about uh, one third of Americans live in a designated mental health provider shortage area, meaning that there is uh, one provider per 30,000 people, definitely not enough. Uh, and it was also, there was some really interesting data um, on the mental health workforce that came out recently showing that in 70% of counties in the US, there is not a single child psychiatrist. So um, our mental health systems have a really long ways to go to, to kind of meet those goals of being equitable and affordable and accessible, like I was saying. Um, at the moment, the main study that I'm doing is on uh, services for aut- autism spectrum disorder and developmental disabilities. Uh, I'm studying how our uh, policies around insurance coverage actually affect access to services and outcomes for kids who use them. Um, I'm also doing some research on trauma and uh, how we can do a better job of uh, screening for trauma in healthcare settings, and then responding uh, with trauma resources for people that have that history, especially kids. And then uh, like just about everybody in the healthcare world, I have had to take a pivot into COVID. Um, There are big intersections with COVID and mental health. So I'm also doing some work right now, um, looking at suicide attempts among kids uh, during the COVID pandemic here in LA. Um, That's probably uh, enough of an overview at this point. um, But like I said, I I really like the kind of dynamic way of working where I can do some research, some teaching and some clinical practice and really all of those three things uh, inform one another. I I feel like my research is better because I know what is going on on the ground, and I get to see for myself what real people and real nurses are dealing with in mental health practice. And then on the flip side, you know, I think that my practice as a nurse is better because I know the research, I know the latest evidence that is coming out about what works and what doesn't, and I can bring that to to my own practice. And then of course on the teaching side, I. Absolutely love interacting with students at UCLA. I think they are just so bright and so smart, and I just love hearing their ideas and getting to support their um, their research and projects. And uh, I think the three of those things all really come together um, nicely, at least in a way that I really enjoy.
0: Sounds like across all three of those practice, research, and teaching, there's a uh, emphasis on uh, healthcare for children. Uh, I'd be Mm -hmm. curious how did your childhood experiences maybe affect your view or or kind of uh, lead you to wanna to focus on this uh, segment of population?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in my family, I come from a really big family. Uh, my family was involved in foster care for, um, for a while. Um, I got to kind of see firsthand um, how harmful abuse and neglect can be to children and what it really looks like when kids experience um, trauma or violence or, or neglect early in their lives. Uh, it tends to play out in a lot of uh, developmental problems. Those kids often have a lot of challenges in uh, emotion regulation and behavior and uh, sometimes their physical health. And, and there's quite a lot of research actually showing that trauma and adversity early in your life has a profoundly negative impact on your development across, across your whole life. And so I really saw that firsthand in and, and my own family with our experiences of having foster kids living with us. And um, I originally went into research wanting to tackle that, really wanting to do something about early life trauma uh, among kids and, and to try to do something to make it better. But once I started doing research, and I will say that was the focus of my PhD when I was at the University of Michigan, once I started doing research, though, what I found was that um, we don't really need any more research to tell us that trauma is a problem like that's pretty clear we've been studying that for decades and there are like thousands of studies that show this Um, and there are also a lot of solutions out there that people have tried and that worked. we know a lot of different therapies that are pretty effective at helping kids who have experienced trauma and violence recover we definitely know that um, you know having support for parents and making sure that kids have safe and stable adult relationships in their lives That is really, really important for helping them to buffer stress and adversity if they experience it. So we we know all these things, but we're not doing it.
0: It sounds maybe like there's an adoption chain risk in in terms of research is probably at the top. Then some of that research ends up being taught. And then very little of that kind of funnels down into practice. And it seems like you're at the the kind of intersection of the joints at each one. And you're kind of able to help that funnel um, capture more. As it goes down. Is, is that the the biggest problem or the overarching problem?
2: Yes, that is actually a perfect way to describe it. Um, you know, uh, it is definitely a problem, translating research into practice. On average, it takes about 17 years between when a study is published and when, you know, change that it suggests gets implemented into practice. And so seeing all these things, you know, it was really clear to me that where we need science is on how do we implement research into practice and really be at the forefront of what is being done to get things that we know work to people and make sure that our service systems are responsive to those things. So yes, that's a perfect way to put it. And I um, really feel strongly about directing my science towards how do we do that translation work uh, and that implementation work to get things that we know can work to the people who need it most.
0: One uh, topic that I feel like is really topical is, and it's unfortunate, it has to be topical, is mass shootings. In the past few years, there's been mass shootings across the U.S. and Las Vegas, uh, Newton, uh, San Bernardino. How do these mass shootings affect nurses? What's the aftermath and how can health systems maybe uh, support nurses after these events?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and this is really um, a big issue in the trauma world. Uh, so we know that when people, um, experience something traumatic, uh, they can develop post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, it's not most people, but some people who experience something traumatic will develop, go on to develop PTSD. And that could be a death, an injury, a sexual assault, um, anything like that. We also know from research though, that you can also acquire PTSD or PTSD like symptoms Uh, in a secondary way. If you are frequently exposed to uh, trauma, to suffering, to death, to dying, especially maybe if it's your job and you are frequently exposed to those things, you can actually develop PTSD also, just from seeing it in others, even if it's secondhand. And so um, I definitely worry about that for nurses uh, and for, for physicians, for paramedics, for everybody who's involved in the healthcare world, but especially nurses, because again, we are really the ones who spend the most direct time with patients. Um, taking care of them. So I um, am involved in a research study right now. Uh, UCLA is uh, conducting a pretty big study in partnership with a lot of other universities and places looking at the um, aftermath of mass shootings. In other words, when a mass shooting happens in the community, beyond just those who were killed or their family members, how do these mass shootings reverberate out and impact the whole community? So within this study, I am looking specifically at nurses and what the experience is like for nurses who respond to mass shootings. Um, And, you know, I think that our data uh, really line up with a lot of what has been shown for secondary trauma and other kinds of professions. Um, It can lead to a lot of really complicated feelings. It can lead to anger, uh, to grief, uh, to sort of PTSD sorts of symptoms like nightmares and intrusive memories and thoughts of what you've seen in your work. Uh, but I think one of the bigger things that really worries me is that I think it leads a lot of nurses to quit and to leave the workforce. It can lead to burnout and compassion fatigue, and for a lot of people, I think they just say, "I'm I'm done. I don't I don't want to do this anymore, and I I can't be a nurse anymore where I experience these things." Um, we already have a pretty serious nursing shortage in the U.S. Uh, Pre-COVID, we were predicted to be about two hundred thousand nurses short per year until twenty thirty. And a lot of that shortage is because uh, the baby boomer baby boomer generation is living longer and living longer sicker. And that means that we need a lot more nurses to care for those people. And we are not keeping pace with that demand by any means. Um, and so I worry that uh, things like mass shootings will also have a negative effect on the nursing workforce. I worry about this a lot too with COVID. I can't even tell you how many nurses I've talked to who work at ICUs, who have told me, um, I'm going to quit. This has been terrible, uh, very similar, actually, to mass shootings, where they might be experiencing some of that burnout and secondary trauma from just the experience of COVID. And uh, a lot of them, I worry, are going to be leaving or retiring in the next few years. And uh, that that's, uh, that's really a potential problem for our healthcare systems, uh, especially given the pre-existing shortage of nurses.
1: Yeah, so speaking of COVID, I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about some of your research related to that. So last March, kind of right as the pandemic was beginning in the U.S. and the, the shelter-in-place orders kind of were given out, um, you published an article in the the Journal of Advanced Nursing um, titled Nursing in the Novel Coronavirus, Risks and Responsibilities in a Global Outbreak. Can you tell us a little bit about what your your major findings were?
2: Sure, absolutely. So that particular paper was um, more of a, a commentary. At that time in the pandemic, we really didn't have a lot of data on just about anything related to COVID. There were some research reports coming out of China because they had kind of got the brunt of it first, but at the U.S. at the time, we really didn't know very much about COVID and what was going to happen. And so that was an article I wrote to kind of talk about um, the potential risks that nurses might experience if this pandemic were to hit the U.S., and kind of what we needed to do to support nurses and make sure that they were equipped to respond. I also wrote um, a a similar article in relation to mental health and my concern early in the pandemic that we were going to have a sort of secondary pandemic of mental health distress um, during COVID. After I wrote these two articles, uh, you know, more research and, and more data started to come out about how it was affecting nurses. A lot of it's pretty negative, but I found that in the mental health space, in terms of my concern that we would see this negative mental health spillover from COVID, there was not a lot of data coming out. Uh, there were a lot of people like me who were concerned about it and worried about online school and social distancing and what this would mean for kids, but very, very little actual data. So I um, actually conducted a study, this is the work I mentioned earlier on adolescent suicide at the hospital where I worked uh, because I noticed that we were seeing a lot of kids coming in who were attempting suicide because of something related to COVID. Um, When it comes to suicide, um, certainly we know that a lot of suicide can originate with mental illness and that people who are dealing with depression or anxiety or other mental health disorders can be at higher risk for suicide. But I was starting to see kids come in who did not have a mental health history, who were just so overwhelmed and stressed by something related to COVID, whether it was online school or you know isolation or even fear of the pandemic and contracting the virus, that they were at the point of feeling suicidal. So I uh, did a study um, about that, uh, kind of documenting that um, even though when the pandemic started. Uh, There were big decreases in mental health service usage Um, that actually happened all across healthcare. Like everyone just stopped going to the doctor for everything. Um, There was kind of this new category of stressor in the lives of kids that was resulting in some suicide attempts that weren't there before. And unfortunately, since then, um, we have kind of seen that missed care early in the pandemic starting to kind of bounce back uh, in terms of a lot more people now are, are needing help and we are. Really busier than ever before on the clinical side. I'm trying to uh, help people who are dealing with mental illness or mental uh, mental health crises because of the pandemic. Um, it's a really big problem, and um, unfortunately, I think there are we're still behind in addressing this and you know having good solutions for it. But um, you know, I am hopeful that this pandemic, uh, as devastating as it has been. Um, can be an opportunity for us to kind of reflect on the problems that were existing in mental health for a very long time, um, and hopefully do something about it, you know, once we come out of this.
0: Uh, Kristen, so one of the silver linings, or or people say it's a silver lining of this pandemic, is the rapid adoption of telemedicine, and it being touted (laughs) as a solution, uh, especially in maybe mental health and and dermatology. Uh, Just listening to you, though, it sounded that patients were coming in uh, to the safety net hospital. I'd be curious, you know, is telemedicine really all that it's lived up to be?
2: Yeah, you know, this is a really good question. I think it's maybe the biggest question in the mental health world right now is, you know, can we do this on telehealth? Um, And I think that the answer is uh, yes. But it's it's complicated. So um, I talked earlier about some of the mental health shortages that we have, and those shortages are really the worst in rural and underserved areas. I think that telehealth has a lot of promise for increasing access to care. Um, I think a lot of people have found um, number one that if you can be on telehealth, you know, there are uh, reduced geographic barriers to getting to see a provider. But I have also seen a lot of patients and people who actually really prefer telehealth. Mental health is still really stigmatized, and I think it can feel difficult or even scary, the thought of going to sit down with a therapist or psychiatrist for a face to face visit. And for a lot of patients that I have seen, being able to text or make a phone call, or even be on a video call feels less intimidating and I think that that really is going to help more people get into mental health care, and at least lower some of the barriers. However, on the flip side of that, for every person there is that thinks telehealth is better and works better for them, there also are a lot of people who really miss the face-to-face interaction with their therapist or you know nurse practitioner or psychiatrist, whatever they're seeing, and really want to be back in person. Um, a lot of the access challenges that we have in mental health, too, are related to um, not just a lack of providers, but a lack of providers who take insurance that people have. There, there are a lot of issues where Uh, public insurance does not reimburse uh, as highly for mental health services as some private insurance options do and so there still are are gaps in terms of insurance and some other structural things but setting that aside i do think that telehealth is is really promising and i do think it's going to help to alleviate at least some of of the burden you know i also think um when we talk about mental health there's kind of a, a spectrum of what that means there's you know usually a threshold that's set that means you have an actual diagnosable mental disorder. But even if you don't reach that clinical threshold for mental illness, a lot of us experience psychological distress and symptoms of of, depression, anxiety, isolation, various things. So I think that for people too, who might be struggling because of the pandemic, whether they have a diagnosed mental disorder or they're just kind of dealing with situational stressors. um, I think that a lot of the options for apps and uh, things like cognitive behavioral therapy apps or mindfulness apps and the the opportunity to just do these things yourself are really promising too. And I think they can help people. Um, There has not been a lot of research, uh, at least not very systematic research on these apps and telehealth in relation to COVID. I hope that some of that uh, will be coming out here soon. What we tend to see for most apps that are related to health is that people use them. and They work really well for a short time while people are using them, but then people stop using them. Them. That's kind of how it tends to go with a lot of health-related apps. So I think there is a question of, you know, sustainability. And for apps that people are just using on their own, um, how good can they be in the long term? That's certainly a question. And for a lot of people, they actually do need professional help, not just an app. Um, but uh, for people who um, are able to better access a provider, um, or find that there is less. Um, uh stigma and psychological barriers to seeking help because it can be a uh, via telehealth I think that's great and, and I really hope that growing options for using um using technology to improve access
0: you talked a little bit about the uh power dynamics of kind of scientists and, and patients in a research study I think one area there's been a real unraveling of, of power dynamics has been in policing uh mm. where they've been kind of forced Um, as a whole, to kind of understand bias and and power and community policing. Uh, You recently published a a study titled Nurses Should Oppose Police Violence and Unjust Policing in Healthcare.
2: Kind of a a whole separate topic, but one that actually ties into a lot of what we've been talking about when it comes to healthcare, power, and and nursing. So um, last year in 2020, um, when uh, the we saw a lot of um, protests and activism over a couple of high profile police killings of unarmed black people. Um, I, uh, as you know, a professor at UCLA, um, saw a lot of letters that were being written by students to us, to people at UCLA, and this happened at universities all over the country. Essentially, there were many cases of students writing letters and kind of saying, okay, these things are happening. We see these protests happening in society, but we also need to do some reckoning with what's happening here at our university or in our department or in our program. Um, There were also many letters written by faculty and a lot of groups of people saying that we need to confront institutional racism in our own setting as well, while we're having this broader conversation about policing. So um, I uh, am a part of a a couple of different departments and programs that got those letters from students. And one of the things that a lot of students at UCLA were asking for was that faculty speak out more about these things. A lot of them felt like, you know, we are often the ones who are raising the issue and speaking out about concerns. And it's really important to us that we also see faculty speaking up, condemning these things and, and reflecting on how institutional racism might be at work in our own again, professions, departments, programs, universities, whichever level. So um, I uh, worked with a group of nurses that I know from all over the country. I think there were about 14 of us that wrote that article. And we got together and said, you know, how can we reflect on the ways that nurses might participate in unfair power dynamics or uh, policing and controlling of patients in healthcare? Because we, we know that this can happen. When people come to seek care, um, they often uh, do experience a lot of power dynamics where they can feel like doctors and nurses and healthcare providers have a lot of the control over what happens to them. And um, I asked all these nurses uh, to come together and to reflect on kind of what this looks like in a whole lot of different care settings. So I work in mental health, and, and this is very salient in mental health because in psychiatric hospitals, We uh, often have people who are hospitalized there against their will, Um, they're in, you know, a mental hospital with doors that are locked, um, and with a lot of conditions where they don't have a lot of control over what happens to them and and what they do. And even though, um, you know, we would like to think that we all approach this in a way that's compassionate and patient centered and where we're putting patients first and really respecting them. That doesn't always happen. A lot of times people uh, can feel like they are really victimized by healthcare. And that plays out in other settings too. It can play out in emergency rooms. It can play out in community health. It can play out in public health. It can play out in you know hospital units you know medical units and surgical units where patients feel afraid and out of control and like they are they are victims of a system that's bigger than them so we wrote this article um, one to respond to, to the request that i saw from students that they wanted faculty to speak out about these things and two to start a broader conversation about how as nurses we can take care to not participate in these dynamics of police-like behaviors or control and uh, where we're not putting patients first and we're not listening to them and we are trying to control them because unfortunately that can happen in practice. Um you know, I think that there is a lot of um positive movement happening in, happening in healthcare to try to change some of these things. Uh there has been in 2020 um you know, a lot of articles published about racism in medicine and nursing and healthcare and how we can start to grapple with these things. Uh but I don't think that there has been um, really widespread structural change yet. I think it's great that the conversation is happening. I think there are new ideas being tried in a lot of different places, uh, but we still have a really long ways to go. And so I do hope that this conversation about policing and institutional racism more broadly, you know, whatever sector of society or higher education you happen to be a part of, I hope that we don't um, let that go, and don't leave that behind in 2020. And that we we keep doing the work that that um, a lot of people have been doing for a long time to bring change to these systems.
1: Awesome, and I think we want to bring it back to to your time at at UCLA here. Uh, so after you were wrapping up your your nursing PhD at the University of Michigan, what made you decide to apply for the National Clinician Scholars Program at UCLA? And then during your time at UCLA, you ended up getting a a master's in health policy and management. Maybe you can kind of distinguish between those two and and tell us a little bit about your experience there.
2: Sure. So um, when I finished my PhD, um, I uh, really wanted to like I talked about earlier, um, move away from doing clinical research and and think more about how we can change systems and implement things that we know from research work into actual practice. And so I learned about this postdoctoral fellowship called the National Clinician Scholars Program. It's actually a pretty unique fellowship. It's uh, an interprofessional program where physicians and nurses trained together to learn how to do exactly that kind of research that I'm talking about, health services research. Um, This program actually has been around for a really long time. Uh, It used to be called the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, and it was a fellowship for just physicians to learn how to do health services research. Um, But in 20, I want to say it was 20. 16, maybe 2015, pretty recently, um, that program rebranded and made a big change that they actually wanted doctors and nurses to learn how to do research together. Um, Kind of uh, the idea being that in healthcare, we can often be really siloed in our different disciplines. And the people who started this program really felt like if we teach um, doctors and nurses to do research together, they might be able to tackle some of these problems together in a way that's really going to result in change. So I really like the idea of this program. Um, it's offered at six different universities in the U.S. UCLA is one of them, and then uh, Michigan is one. Uh, Penn, Yale, UCSF, and Duke are the other places where this was offered. So I interviewed at you know the other sites, and UCLA was the last one I came to. At that point, I had my heart pretty set on a different site, and almost didn't come to UCLA at all because I um, had really never set foot in California or thought about California at all um, prior to thinking about this program. But I decided to do it and and came to UCLA. And when I got here, I um, just kind of immediately changed my mind and decided that I wanted to come here uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that um, UCLA, I think, uh, really struck me as a place that was very collaborative. It really felt like people wanted to work here together to solve problems and that people were out to help each other succeed and to work in teams. Um, Academia and research can be incredibly cutthroat, and sometimes it can feel like you're in competition with everyone uh, around you, your colleagues. But I didn't get that impression at all from UCLA. It really felt like this was a place where people wanted to work together. The other thing that I was really excited about was that there was a big emphasis in the National Clinician Scholars Program at UCLA on the idea of community-partnered research. Uh, And what that means is, um, you know, in research, like I talked about earlier, we often have this bad history of us researchers coming and doing experiments or studying people and not really thinking about what is going on for those people and and what they need on the other side of research. In the NCSP, they really embrace a framework where from the beginning of research, we have patients sitting at the table with us as researchers or community members and that we engage uh, patients and communities as partners in the research process we treat them equitably, we give them decision-making power, and we really conduct research together. Um, That is a pretty big paradigm shift from how research has been historically done. But for someone um, who studies mental health, where there's a lot of Power dynamics to begin with, it really seemed to me like this is the the right way to do research if I really care about equity. To not only be addressing problems that are going to solve equity, but in my work, the process of doing science, making sure that I am embodying that here in in the work that I do as a scientist. So I came to UCLA to to do that training. It was a really wonderful experience. Um, I was the only nurse with, I think, seven other physicians uh, from all different specialties. And we really, I think, had that experience of. learning a lot from one another, getting to work together. And to this day, I still work with many of um, the physicians that I met in that program, it was really wonderful. And uh, in the course of doing the NCSP, I also had the opportunity to do a master's in health policy and management, uh, where I now have an appointment as a professor. And um, that that really helped me too, for the same reasons that I think the NCSP works. Um, I think that if you can bring together different disciplines and teams of people that comment health problems from different perspectives, you really have a lot of potential to to create solutions that are gonna work. I think that if I just approach mental health only from the perspective of nursing, or if we approached it only from the perspective of psychiatry or only public health, um, it just ends up being limited. Whereas I think that getting to train with with physicians, with nurses uh, in public health, it really gives me a lot of different perspectives and the ability to bring together these interdisciplinary teams, Including patients and community members that I think um, have a lot more potential to really do something with research and actually um, solve problems and really think about all the different sides of it. So, um, yeah, that that's really what brought me to UCLA and why I still work here. Um, it still feels that way to me that it really is an interdisciplinary place. And um, yeah, I feel really fortunate to to be a Bruin uh, graduate and then also to get to work here at UCLA. It's um, really a wonderful university and. I um, appreciate how much that they have supported me and uh, the work that I'm trying to do in mental health.
1: Um, so it would be a remiss of us of, as interviewers not to mention that uh, you were named to be uh, Forbes 30 under 30 list for for healthcare. So a belated congrats. Tell us a little Thank bit you. about how you found out you were nominated and, and what it means to be commended for your work.
2: Sure. Well, thank you so much. Um, the, the Forbes honor last year was a really big surprise to me. Um, so, um, I was nominated for the 30 under 30 list by, uh, Dean Linda Sarna. She is the Dean of the school of nursing here at UCLA. And, um, I actually didn't know I had made it until like the list came out. Um, it's, it's a process where, you know, there's an open public nomination. Uh, anyone can self nominate or nominate someone else. And then, um, there is a long process of, of whittling down that list of people. So I knew that I had been nominated and I did get a couple of emails from folks who were on the panel asking clarifying questions or, you know, fact-checking kinds of questions, but I didn't know that I actually had made it until it was was published. And it was a really huge honor because um, historically Forbes and their 30 under 30 list has been fairly entrepreneurial. It's been focused a lot on Um, tech and and startups and in the healthcare list a lot on people who have um, uh, participated in entrepreneurial ventures in healthcare, which is great, but they haven't focused as much on sort of frontline clinicians and and people who might be leaders um, in a different kind of way. So um, I I was really honored to be a part of um, the list. Um, To my knowledge, I I don't think they've ever included a list on that US healthcare list before. Um, and, And I was the only nurse on the list in 2020. And it meant a lot to me because I think nurses have done so much in the pandemic, really, again, the front of the front lines of the work of um, saving people's lives and responding to, to the worst parts of the pandemic for those patients who are hospitalized. And I think that nurses often don't get a lot of recognition or credit for what they do. Um, like I said, I think we tend to think that nurses do what they do because they're nice or they do what they do because they're good. and, and um, I I think that we don't typically see recognition of nurses in spaces like Forbes. So I felt really proud that nursing was represented and uh, that I got to be the person to represent it there. And I think the thing that made it um, most meaningful for me was that I got a lot of emails from younger nurses who I know who said, wow, like I... I never even thought about this for myself, or, or that nurses could be a part of this. I, I hope that, like, I can do something like this someday too. And so, I hope that we will see many more, um, you know, nurses uh, on Forbes and lists like Forbes in the future, and that we just keep recognizing the ways that nurses are making a difference and being leaders. Um, I think that there is a lot of um, hidden work that nurses are doing that uh, really deserves to be highlighted.
0: Thank you for that insight. I think for knocking it was especially helpful because I think he's been self nominating himself for a, a few years and he only has oh, yeah? two or three years left. So
1: <laughs> I think
0: hopefully this, this will give him an edge for those remaining uh,
1: years. Full transparency for our listeners. Uh, Pranav is joking. I have not actually submitted my name before. Just want to make sure I put that <laughs> out there into the, and so our, uh, our last two questions that we, we like to ask, Uh, Kristen, what is your favorite UCLA memory and who is your favorite Bruin?
2: Oh, very good questions. Um, My favorite UCLA memory. Um, I think that this is kind of a kind of a basic memory, but it's the one that stands out the most. Um, When I first came to LA to interview for the National Clinician Scholars Program, like I said, it was really the first time in my life I had ever even thought about California. I grew up in Michigan. I had never been to California. I didn't know anyone from California and I just uh, never thought of myself ever going here or, or visiting. I didn't know anything about it. Um, what were your biases
0: I, that you had about California and were I, any I of them the, founded?
2: Yeah, I think they were just the usual kind of like, oh, it's, you know, Hollywood entertainment. It's full of celebrities and palm trees and kind of a superficial place like I don't know if I really thought about it much beyond that um, but when I came here I, I you know went to my Airbnb in Westwood and I decided I should just walk around because I didn't know what else to do with myself and it was night and I took a walk up to UCLA's campus and I remember walking up Westwood Boulevard walking past you know the medical center up uh, into the center of campus and kind of coming up near the top of campus where you look up on the Jan steps and kind of see this really nice view of the whole campus. And I just remember thinking, wow, this this campus is really incredible. This city is really incredible. And it just feels so different than any university I've ever been to before. I mean, I grew up in, in Michigan and the vibe of Big Ten schools is very different than what UCLA feels like. I also have visited, you know, a lot of schools on the East Coast and those also feel very different than what UCLA felt like to me. And I think there was just something about it that really inspired me. It felt like this is there's something really different here, really fresh here about this city and this campus that I really wanted to be a part of. So, I always remember that walk up Westwood Boulevard and campus because it was like the first thing I ever did in LA. And um, even knowing like truly nothing about where I was or what was going on, I really felt um, inspired just, just by being here. Um, I don't know if my stereotypes about LA turned out to be true. I think some of them, you know, I haven't actually seen any celebrities. So I guess there weren't as many wandering around uh, Westwood as I would have thought uh, when I came from Michigan.
0: Side note, the first time Nakin and I met at UCLA, uh, we ended up seeing Miley Cyrus on campus no way Uh, yeah so like it didn't help our idea that celebrities were everywhere in LA
2: (laughs) well okay so it can happen that's great I have not actually seen a celebrity yet since since living here um I also like totally didn't grasp the traffic here and what that would be like I it just like no concept of how bad it could be so (laughs) that that was not such a good surprise um and then your second question was my favorite Bruin is that right yep Okay, so I think that the person I would have to say is Kay Redfield Jamison. Um, I don't know if either of you have heard of her, but she is a pretty famous um, psychiatrist who, who used to be at UCLA. I think now she is at Johns Hopkins. But she wrote a book called An Unquiet Mind that was um, I think a bestseller. It was a really well-known book. And she wrote about what it was like to be a psychiatrist and a professor at UCLA uh, and her personal experience of having bipolar disorder. She writes very openly about what it felt like to have a serious, you know, psychiatric disorder like that, what it was like to be, you know, seeing psychotic, psychi- uh, sorry, psychiatrists being in a mental hospital and, and really openly about her perspective as a patient. And um, I have always loved that book because I think that as a mental health care provider and researcher, it's just so easy to lose track of what it feels like to be um, to be the patient, to be on the other side. And in a lot of cases, people are afraid and they're scared and they're struggling. And a lot of our mental health systems are just um, the worst thing that you can imagine for people who are feeling that way. So I always really appreciated her book, An Unquiet Mind, because it just gave me what I consider to be very valuable perspective about what it feels like to be a patient the other person that I really look up to, I actually listed this person on Forbes, they asked me, you know, who was my dream mentor, and I listed this person, is another Southern California professor named Ellen Sachs, she's a professor at USC, actually, Uh, and she's a law professor, and she has a very famous similar book called The Center Cannot Hold, and The Center Cannot Hold is a personal memoir of her story with having schizophrenia, and uh, she writes, again, very openly about what it feels like to have a psychotic disorder, about her experience of, you know, going through medications and hospitals and just uh, her, her, her lifelong struggle with having this um, mental illness and going through law school and uh, coming to be a professor. She's now a professor who um, has done a lot of advocacy for the mental health, uh, mental health rights and the legal rights of people with mental illness. And um, Kay Redfield Jamison has done the same, a lot of research and work on, on mental illness that stems I'm sure in part from her own experience. These two, and, and definitely Kay Jamison from UCLA, um, I, I really respect their work and you know their openness with their own experiences. It can be really hard to talk about those things.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And thanks so much for joining us on Bruin One Ear and Out the Other. But before we let you go, feel free to give us a 30-second plug for something going on in your life.
2: Oh, a 30-second plug for something going on in my life. Um, let's see here. I think that the only plug that I have to give uh, is that um, what I said earlier, when you're offered a COVID vaccine, go and get it. I've been giving the vaccines, uh, probably hundreds of them at the drive-in sites here in LA and I know a lot of people are frustrated by the lines and the appointments, and people um, still have questions and concerns. But please go get the vaccine. Get your questions answered from good, uh, reputable information sources, and you know it's really important. If you're not eligible right now, you know, see if you can get your parents to get it or your family members. We we all um, you know have a part to play in getting ourselves to herd immunity, and I I think that's the only thing I can think of that I hope everyone will uh, <laughs> will take away from this.
0: Thanks again to Kristen for joining us on the podcast. As always, hopefully everything we talked about didn't go brewing one ear and out the other.